Hello, everyone. Welcome to our event on what is currently happening in Lebanon, the Lebanese revolution that was re-sparked uh, recently due to the tragic explosion. But these uh, the things happening in Lebanon right now are quite inspiring. So just a bit about us. My name is Sarah. I'm a member of Fight Back. Uh, we are a socialist organization here in Canada. Uh, we're part of a larger international organization called the International Marxist Tendency. And we are for building socialism in our lifetime. That's what we fight for. That's what we aspire to. Um, so the event today is going to be presented by Adam Zinedine, who will speak shortly. And um, basically what's going to happen is he's going to speak for maybe 30, 45 minutes, something along those lines. And afterwards, we're going to have a discussion. We want this event to be as normal as possible, despite the fact that it's happening online. I also want to invite you all to uh, share the live stream on Facebook on our Fight Back uh, main page. Uh, if you're attending this, this event, then uh, please share this as widely as possible. So uh, the other thing I wanted to mention before we get the event going is uh, this, this actually, this event costs us some money to, to have. Uh, the Zoom account is not free. We have a special Zoom account that we're able to have um, a certain amount of participants and, 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 and so on and so forth. So if, if you want to help support our cause, support what we fight for, uh, I'm gonna send a link in the chat shortly um, to help uh, fundraise for the event. So that's about it. I don't have uh, much else to add. I'm gonna give the, uh, the right, oh, uh, there's gonna be discussion afterwards, which everyone's gonna be welcome to participate in. I'll speak more about, a bit about that towards the, the end of, of Adam's, uh, after the, Adam finished speaking. And without further ado, I'm going to leave it off to Adam. Adam, I'm going to unmute you in just a second. Hold on. Hello, everyone. Um, it's really great to see so many people here uh, interested in uh, learning about what's going on in Lebanon right now, which by all accounts is a very amazing uh, development in the sense that the slogan of the Lebanese revolution, uh, for people who don't know, is all of them means all of them. Um, so this revolution, which began really last year in October and is still ongoing, um, is a revolution not just against uh, you know, what's going on in this or that situation in Lebanon, but an indictment of the entire ruling elite in Lebanese society. Um, and this has become uh, you know, really the backdrop of, of the revolution since October of last year, you had the masses of Lebanon, which have struggled and toppled not one, but two governments in less than a year. Um, and so this slogan of, of really attacking the entire political ruling establishment um, in Lebanon um, is important, especially in the context of the Middle East, where you have similar situations, not just in Lebanon, but in Egypt and Iran, in Syria, in Jordan, in all of these uh, Arab countries, which are facing similar crises, and the ruling class in these countries cannot resolve them. Um, but in Lebanon specifically, I think the reason that this slogan resonates is because it's uniting everyone. And, and this is impressive, because Lebanon, for, for people who don't know, is a deeply divided country by religion. Um, since its very inception, it's been torn by sectarian differences. Uh, it's always been a country uh, where, you know, many religions lived side by side for thousands of years, uh, relatively peacefully. But when the French colonized Lebanon, uh, uh, you know, uh, in the uh, early 1900s, 
uh, they played a role in actually in heightening uh, these cultural and religious differences and using them uh, as a way to control uh, the region. Um, and they would intentionally, for example, attack the Muslim population and elevate the Christians, um, giving them, you know, a loyal and wealthy minority that would support their colonization and so on. And this, this uh, situation in what we call the French mandate, uh, even after the French left the country, um, it left behind a political system based around these religious divisions in which different, you know, uh, political positions are tied to whatever religion uh, you happen to have. Uh, so it's not really a true democracy. And this was cemented, especially at the end of the Lebanese Civil War in 1990, um, where you had all of these sectarian uh, political leaders, which really were warlords. You know, the country was divided in a civil war. And these, these warlords, you know, came together and agreed to a peace where they would share power, uh, power sharing agreement called the Taf Agreement. Um, and it, it really was just legalizing corruption, right? And the ability for them to loot and rob the country. Um, and of course, who would pay for this? It would be the Lebanese masses. So the sectarian divisions really in society in Lebanon really come from the top of society and, and are handed down to the masses. Uh, if you grow up in, in, in Lebanon, you're taught this from a very young age. Even actually the birth certificates in Lebanon, you cannot have one unless you state what religion you are. Um, so it's, it's, uh, it's that kind of ingrained in people. But this movement, what it's done is actually unite everyone, no matter what their religious background is, no matter what, um, you know, political affiliation they were born into, and instead united them, uh, the entire mass of people against the ruling elite, which are the real criminals in Lebanese society. Um, that, that have robbed and, and, you know, really butchered the masses for, for decades and decades. And this all came to a head on August 4th, when uh, many people saw there was a massive explosion uh, in Beirut, uh, about 2,750 uh, uh, tons of ammonium nitrate uh, exploded. Um, this is a chemical that's often used in fertilizer and explosives. Um, and, you know, uh, about 170, 250 people have been uh, dead, you know, uh, cited dead on, on arrival to the hospital, which was completely overwhelmed uh, with people. And over 5,000 were injured and hundreds are still missing. So this, uh, this uh, death toll is actually climbing. Um, and the, the, you know, as soon as this happened, <laughs> people started to kind of speculate, you know, what, what caused this explosion? Uh, is it the, uh, you know, was it the, um, uh, for example, Hezbollah, which is a, a known militant uh, terrorist group uh, in Lebanon? Was it uh, Israel? Um, uh, and actually, it was quickly found out that it was the neglect and corruption of the government, right? The actual government that's in power, the officials that uh, caused this explosion. They knew about this nitrate. They knew about it for years, in fact, and they simply left it there in the middle of a city knowing that it could cause an explosion like this. In fact, just two weeks before uh, the explosion, uh, the president of Lebanon, Aoun, uh, got information about the nitrate, uh, and he, you know, he didn't do anything. So he got the info that it was still there, it should be moved, it's dangerous. Um, and you know, when confronted with this, he said, you know, I don't have any power. I'm, I'm, just, you know, I'm just the president. Um, so they're completely deflecting blame. The government's blaming, blaming port officials. Port officials are blaming other officials, et cetera. It's just kind of a big circle. And who's, who pays for the neglect and corruption of these people that are in power? 
Of course, the Lebanese masses, right? They're the ones that actually suffer. They're the ones that are, uh, are forced to bear the brunt of the complete incompetence of these people. Um, and, you know, for us uh, in the international Marxist tendency, our response is simple. They're all to blame. All of them means all of them. They're all, they're all meant to, they should, they should all be blamed. Every member of the ruling class in Lebanon has caused this. Um, and thousands have been injured, hundreds killed, and for what? Um, and Lebanon was already a country that was struggling. Um, it's important to point out that this process of revolution, it's not just that this revolution kind of happened as a response to the explosion. It's been building for a very long time. Um, it's been digging under the surface for decades and decades even. Uh, so Lebanon's been facing horrible conditions for an extremely long time, uh, just to name a few things. The government in Lebanon isn't even able to handle something as simple as garbage disposal uh, due to the corruption and bribery in the system. In 2015, for example, there was this crisis where the government just would not handle garbage disposal. They just leave it out in the streets of Beirut. Um, and you had a huge protest movement at that time forcing them right, to actually do something. And now they kind of handle the garbage, not really. If you go to Beirut, it's, it used to be a very beautiful city. Now it's completely in decay. Obviously, now it's devastated. But I mean, I was there you know, just a few years ago, uh, just last year. And, you know, you can kind of walk in the streets and you see that there's just garbage piling up everywhere because the government just doesn't arrange for it to be picked up due to, uh, you know, corruption and, and bribery and so on. Even waste disposal from the sewage system is not handled properly in Lebanon. It's just dumped into the Mediterranean Ocean. Uh, you can, it's, it's gone so bad, you can actually look at Google Maps and you can see it piling up. Uh, you know, the satellites can actually see it from space. Um, that, that's how horrible <laughs> it is. Uh, even electricity, uh, you know, the, the basic, you would think, necessity. Um, on average, people in Lebanon don't have electricity for 16 hours of the day. So, you know, there's people, uh, just families that talk about how they have to play, plan their daily activities based around the cutoffs, you know, uh, no hot water at certain times. Uh, you can't wash clothes at, at certain times. You, can't, you have to throw away food that goes rotten because fridges don't work, you know. And, and why is this? You know, again, why does this happen? Well, there's private generator industries which operate kind of like a mafia and they're connected to all the politicians. So there's these bribes and, and corruption that go on so that the ruling elite don't even have to provide uh, basic, you know, electricity to people. And of course, it's important to point out they don't suffer from any of this. Right. So the people in power, of course, they live very comfortable, very good lives. Right. They're extremely wealthy um, and they certainly don't have to deal with electricity cutoffs. They certainly don't have to deal with, um, you know, the problems of garbage disposal. They have that all taken care for them. Right. So coupled with this, you also have the deep economic issues, which, again, the working class has to deal with in Lebanon. Um, it's one of the most indebted countries in the world, despite being one of the smallest. Uh, and this is because the government routinely gambles and embezzles state money. They just take it and use it for uh, themselves. You know, ministers will enter the government in Lebanon with no assets and leave owning millions. <laughs> One minister, for example, who was, uh, I think, the nephew of the president, entered the government as just a simple school teacher. And when he left his post a year later, he had a private jet. Um, so th th this is the kind of bullshit that happens in this country. It's, it's absolutely absurd. 
Um, and it lead, led the government multiple times to run out of money, obviously, um, and to ask for money to be lent to them, right, from various uh, international investors. Um, and eventually they just defaulted on their debt, which caused the massive inflation crisis where the currency has lost 80% of its value. Imagine for a moment, just one moment, being paid 80% less, right? So you go to work, you, you work for a week, a month, whatever, um, and you get 80% less of your paycheck because 80% of the currency is useless. So, you know, it's absolutely absurd. Uh, so the prices that have soared as a result, um, a single piece of meat in Lebanon right now is 33 US dollars. It's gotten so expensive that the government isn't actually buying meat for the soldiers anymore. Uh, they just, thank you. Uh, they've just cut that out of, uh, you know, uh, the, <laughs> the diet um, of the army because it's just too expensive. Uh, the UN has estimated that 50% of Lebanese people will drop into poverty this year. Uh, right now, there's actually over 50% youth unemployment people between the ages of 18 and 30, uh, over half of them don't have a job and are unable to get a job. And even more importantly, uh, there's actually an incoming hunger crisis that's happening because Lebanon imports about 85% of its food and the port due to the blast was destroyed, right? Um, and on top of this, the blast also took away the food reserves, which were kept at the ports. So in the next few months, it's estimated that Lebanon will begin to uh, actually face this hunger crisis. Um, and of course, you know, the ruling elite, they're completely oblivious. They, they've done nothing to resolve any of these problems. Uh, complete incompetence, corruption, all they care about is lining their own pockets at the expense of the working class in Lebanon. Um, but it's important to point this out because Lebanon is not actually a poor country. It's not a deeply, you know, uh, destroyed or, or poor country by any sense. Many political dynasties in Lebanon have billions in wealth and assets. Um, and they're, they're mostly created these, these fortunes through theft uh, from the national reserves. Um, and they defend themselves through this sectarian political system. So effectively, they steal. And then they say, no, no, but we care about, you know, our own religion or our own uh, you know, a uh, portion of the working class in Lebanon. You know, some of the wealthiest men in Lebanon, um, such as the previous prime minister that was brought down in October of last year, um, Saeed Hariri, he comes from a family that has billions upon billions, um, despite coming from one of the poorest areas in Lebanon, Tripoli, right? Um, and one of these, many of these people have been in, in government before and have used this as a way to uh, garnish wealth and, and gain power. So, you know, this means that the revolution in Lebanon, I see this often, is sometimes characterized as kind of a, a nation coming together against a couple of corrupt thieves, you know, in government. And it's important to understand that's not what's happening at all. This is actually a class issue. It's the working class in Lebanon uniting on class lines um, and uniting not just against this or that politician, but against the entire criminal corrupt system that has brought them into this situation. This is the system of capitalism, effectively, which allows a minority of people to run society, to dictate whatever they want uh, within a, a country, uh, to do whatever they want with the billionaires that they accrue. And uh, you know, the working class can just suffer the brunt of their incompetence and their negligence. Um, so 
uh, it's really a working class revolution that we're seeing. So the movement itself, talk a bit about it, uh, considering these conditions, the movement uh, you know, arising as an outcry against what's going on makes perfect sense. I mean, it's the accumulated frustration and suffering of the Lebanese masses. Um, like I mentioned, it, it actually began last year in October, where you had the government announce attacks on uh, WhatsApp calls. Uh, WhatsApp is, is often used as a, as a way to communicate in Lebanon because it's pretty cheap. And this was kind of the final straw uh, because people were dealing with so much already. And it's, it's an incredibly impressive movement just because of the scale of it. You know, at the height of it in, in late October, two million people were in the streets. Um, some, out, some media outlets were even saying, you know, three million. Um, and Lebanon is actually only a country of six million people. Um, so that means 30 to 50 percent of people were participating in this, in this movement. They were out in the streets, etc. This huge movement, uh, you know, was quite powerful. Uh, but it also had kind of a mixed bag in terms of demands and and there was effectively really no leadership it was just an outcry of anger so you had all kinds of demands you had the demands for reforming the system and punishing the corruption but you also had you know more radical demands things like the demand for health care uh, electricity increased wages and even some people were demanding an entirely new uh, system to be put in place an overthrow of the current system so in in many ways the revolution itself began to personify the change that it wanted to see. And what I mean by this is as the protesters began to occupy Martyr Square, it's this big square in Beirut uh, that was set up, um, I, I believe, at the end of the Civil War. Um, as they began to occupy this uh, in the thousands, they actually began to distribute medical supplies. They began to give food uh, to hungry people. And there was even talk of seizing resources from the government and putting them to use for the people. So the revolution was, was advancing you know, quite quickly. Um, and and the, this, of course, horrified <laughs> the ruling class in Lebanon. They realized that they had to give some kind of concession if they wanted to stay in power. And so they, uh, they resigned in, in October. This was the old government. Said Hariri stepped down. And in was ushered uh, Hassan Diab, which was the most recent prime minister um, who formed a new government. Um, and they did this to appease the masses, of course. They, they weren't interested in changing anything at all with the system. They just wanted uh, to kind of uh, allow the masses to let off some steam, promise some reforms, and then wait until they were in a better position. Um, people, of course, you know, being inexperienced in politics and having effectively no leadership to this movement, many of them went home um, and they decided to give this government a chance. Um, you still had, you know, some sporadic movements throughout the year, but not on the scale as before. Um, so it's important to point out, that, though, that with the Hassan Diab government, nothing changed, nothing at all. So for this government was in power for nine months and it passed some anti-corruption legislation here, um, you know, a, a little bit of uh, kind of a small reform here and there, but nothing fundamentally shifted um, in the situation. And this led most recently to a revival in the movement, um, especially in the wake of the Beirut explosion, um, which everyone, everyone in Lebanon really agrees was due to the neglect of the current government. Um, and this led to thousands and thousands of people streaming back into the streets um, you know, 10,000 people in Martyr Square once more. Um, there were even calls from these protesters most recently, just over the past week, 
um, to join uh, for the soldiers to join the protesters um, saying, you know, come join us. How are you? You're not even getting paid. The government's not even paying you. Join us and let's actually form uh, a new Lebanon. Um, so they've been appealing to the army to, to help them against the corrupt ruling class. Um, and the, it's actually quite scandalous because the, in response, the, the government, before its resignation, unleashed the army and the police uh, on the masses, where, when before they actually were refusing to use the army to clean up uh, the streets in Beirut that were devastated. They, they were actually pulling them back to the barracks. And this is because they knew that there was going to be protests and they wanted to have the army in reserve to, to crush these protests. So the protesters were actually leading up most of the cleanup of the city. Um, they were forming you know, small committees and teams to clean up parts of Beirut, um, et cetera. Um, and, and it's fundamental to understand that in this movement, it's not you know, just a couple of young people you know, demanding some kind of revolution. It was actually the, some of the most oppressed uh, people in society. Things like you know, you'd have 50-year-old mothers uh, that would go to these protests with their kids um, who, people who have lived through the last civil war, right, um, that would be tear gassed and attacked with rubber bullets by the army um, and the, the cops who were refusing to help with cleanup in the city. Uh, and they would be tear gassed and attacked and they would just go back in, right? There was no, the repression didn't stop the movement at all. Um, and this meant that obviously the government got scared um, and, uh, you know, uh, resigned once more. What's important to point out here is the enormous courage uh, that the masses are showing. Uh, it's really quite inspirational. Uh, I've personally, you know, never really quite seen anything like it, where you have people who have been unable to get a meal um, for uh, consistently for weeks and weeks and weeks. They've had their pay cut. Many of them have lost their homes. 300,000 people lost their homes in this blast. And despite all of this, they're uniting together and opposing a, a corrupt regime. Um, that has led them to this impasse. So the courage they've shown is, inc is incredible, um, but it's important to understand why the Diab government was unable to provide reforms, uh, because this was a big demand of, of the earlier movement. The earlier movement was demanding what we would call a technocratic government, right? So a government, instead of a government of politicians, it would be a government of professionals. This was the, the call before. A lot of people will talk about this. But this is really a utopian demand. Uh, it doesn't actually come, to, come about in reality. And there's a reason for that. Um, the problem with it is that the ruling class in Lebanon really fundamentally was not challenged. It didn't change in any real way. All the power, the money, the industry in Lebanon, and even the government itself remained in the hands of um, the, the ruling class. So how could this technocratic government you know, do any kind of reforms when the real problems <laughs> remained. I mean, uh, you know, to, for example, Hezbollah, uh, one of the biggest uh, parties in, in Lebanon that's been in government since 2018, Hezbollah actually supported Hassan Diab uh, and the new government. Thanks, Sarah. Uh, that, that was, you know, they supported the new government. And the reality is the state, as in the machine of the government, anywhere in the world, but especially in Lebanon, functions at the whim of the ruling class. You know, all the functionaries, all the uh, legislators, all of the judiciary people um, that, that the masses were looking to, these people weren't uh, impartial, right? They, they're connected to some form of, 
the political elite. They're connected to the old system. So they couldn't really reform a system. It was tantamount to asking the people in power to reform themselves. Right? This is a system that benefited them. They were part and parcel, this new government, of the old ruling class. They're, they were not new. Right? And all the corruption legislation in the world, all the anti-corruption legislation in the world, no matter how many papers you write, um, no matter how many laws you pass, it, no one will enforce it <laughs> because the state is in the hands of uh, the ruling clique that is using it for this purpose. You know, technocrats don't really appear out of the sky and, and fall down completely pure for us to use in government. That's, not, that's just not how it works. You know, the people that find themselves in positions of power are supported by the, the people that created that power in the first place. So it's the same criminals, the same crooks that were robbing people, uh, and yes, even killing them, as we saw with the, uh, the blast in Beirut. Um, and, you know, to exemplify this, I'll give you an example. Aoun, the president, and the secretary general, Hassan Nasrallah, remained in power. Nothing uh, changed. So they, they've been in power even after the old revolution. They, they didn't leave at all, right? And then you've had kind of other parties that have attempted to join the revolution. So, so people have started to look to these other organizations that are uh, more pure, right? They haven't been in government during this horrible time. Maybe we can look to them, right? Parties like uh, you have the uh, kind of Christian Kitaeb party, this kind of right-wing Christian party that was founded on the ideas of Mussolini, actually, uh, a very fascist-leaning party, or even uh, the Sunni parties, like the Future Movement, um, which were uh, removed from power before. You know, why don't we look to these people instead to, to help us, you know, to help run the society? Um, and it's important to understand that these people are tied to the sectarian system, right? So even though they've been involving themselves in the revolution in small ways, and even though they're not in government, right, um, they don't care about, about the masses. They, they really have no interest in helping the masses at all. Uh, their demands, uh, to give you an example, is what, we, what they're calling a disarmed city, or Beirut is a peaceful city. And this is really cold language. What it means is they want Hezbollah to give up uh, weapons. Hezbollah is a, the only party in Lebanon that still maintains uh, its arms from the civil war. And a big demand by these other parties is to give up uh, the weapons that Hezbollah has. And the problem with injecting the movement with this kind of rhetoric is what you're really saying is if Hezbollah didn't exist, right? if Hezbollah was removed from the situation and these other parties the party, the future movement, all of these people were in power instead, Lebanon would not be in this position. And that's fundamentally untrue. All of these people, no matter what party they come from, all the entire political establishment in Lebanon is tied to the sectarian system, benefits from it, and is interested not in get, changing the situation and reforming things so that Lebanon is a brand new country where we can all you know, live in peace, et cetera, and have good jobs and healthcare, all these things. They're not interested in that. What they're interested in is taking power away from their enemies and doing the same shit, right? So they, they won't change anything. Uh, this is the fundamental problem. So even though they've tried to kind of position themselves as friends of the revolution or put themselves at the head of the revolution, the masses cannot trust them because these people are fundamentally tied to the system. They're part and parcel of the same problem. They're not a solution. But to give you an example of what they've been trying to do, so there was a, a protest at the foreign ministry, for example. Um, and this protest 
was headed up by retired generals um, and retired army officers. And it was later found out that one of the people that had raised the slogan of disarming uh, Hezbollah at this protest um, was actually tied to the Kata'ib party um, and uh, was coming out and saying that, oh, the Kata'ib is actually a friend of the revolution. Etc. So it's this kind of rhetoric that's actually very dangerous, right? Because it changes the revolution from uh, a united struggle of all the masses across all sectarian lines against sectarianism, against the corruption, and against uh, the ruling class to a struggle of one religion or party against another religion or party. It effectively divides the ruling class and separates them. So not only would they not change anything, it would actually weaken the masses. You know, the great power of this movement, the enormous power of it, is its ability to overcome these sectarian divisions. And these sectarian divisions, like I mentioned before, they're not, uh, you know, they're not uh, something that are inherent to society in the Middle East. And we see it in other countries too. You know, in Syria, you had uh, similar divisions. In Saudi Arabia, you have similar divisions, etc. Across the whole region, the ruling class tries to use religion as a way to divide the masses. Um, but it really comes from the top. It's only in the interest of the ruling class to divide people this way. So this is why the masses in Lebanon can't rely on any of these parties that are tied to the sectarian system. It would simply weaken uh, the struggle overall. The other group of people <laughs> that has been uh, making overtures to the movement and trying to help it are the forces of imperialism. Um, so uh, a part of the issue in Lebanon, in particular, all of these parties, how they maintain their power is actually capitalist powers outside of Lebanon uh, are tied to these parties and influence these parties and use them to maintain control of the region based on the old sectarianism that was established. Hezbollah and Iran is a good example. We also have uh, the Kataeb party and the French. You have uh, the future movement and Saudi Arabia, right? So you have all of these international actors that are interested in maintaining Lebanon politically um, as, a, as a safe market, right, for them to make a quick buck, right, and maintain control of the Middle East. So it's this kind of game that they play. And the pawns in this game are the masses, right? So in the aftermath of the fall of the government, America and France, uh, you know, are, are upping pressure. Actually, Macron, the president of France, was the first world leader to be in Beirut, um, after the explosion. And uh, people were even looking to him for solutions. Uh, there was a petition online uh, to revive French rule, uh, which gained, I think, 80,000 uh, signups. Uh, and Macron was like, no, 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 of course, we would never consider uh, you know, running Lebanon again. Lebanon has to be free and independent. But uh, we encourage Lebanon to make a deal with the IMF, the International Monetary Fund. Um, and the, the IMF, you know, trying to bail Lebanon out has, has become something that the movement is talking about. But it's important not to fall for this, uh, because obviously the IMF is a financial institution, and their interest is making a profit. <laughs> and who would they make pay for this profit? How would they bail Lebanon out? Um, they wouldn't just give money to, to the Lebanese government out of the kindness of their own hearts. They would do it at uh, the cost of what they call reforms. And what they mean by reforms isn't democratic reforms, a change to the sectarian system. What they mean is privatizations of industry. So there would be mass layoffs in Lebanon, more than there are now. There would be wage cuts, right? 
there would be a cuts to any social programs, things like education, etc. All of the development that Lebanon has made due to past struggles and past revolutions in the country would be cut back under the kind rule of the IMF. So the IMF would say, no, 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 Hezbollah shouldn't be in power. Instead, you should make a deal with, uh, you know, France and America and, uh, and us democratic countries that really care about democracy and care about you, uh, Lebanese people, and maintain the same system as before, except now under the kind and benevolent eyes of the International Monetary Fund, um, which will take your livelihoods uh, and force... Uh, force you to to pay huge sums <laughs> to uh, to this international institution, um, and it would just generally cut the living standard of the Lebanese people. So they would make the Lebanese masses pay for the corruption um, of uh, the ruling class. They wouldn't fundamentally change anything. So these overtures by imperialism are are quite are not good, right? Um, and it's the same, by the way, with. Hezbollah and Iran, you know, th these kinds of uh, outside powers are not interested in any fundamental change. And in many ways, they've actually created this situation. Um, so, thank you. Um, so, for example, uh, the government, one of the governments that constantly would bail out the ruling class uh, in Lebanon would be the Macron and the French government. They would often give uh, money to the Lebanese government and would call the Lebanese people their eternal friends, you know, such kind language. Uh, but in reality, they have no interest in, in helping people. They just want to control the situation. So it's not a, so a solution, um, this imperialism. It's a big part of why Lebanon is the way it is today, actually, is these outside actors um, instead. So, you know, what needs to happen instead then? You know, what, what is the alternative? Well, the alter there is an alternative to this. You know, you don't have to choose imperialism and you don't have to cho choose the same old sectarian system. What you actually can look to and what we should look to is the masses themselves, which have shown an enormous amount of pow power in, in how they've operated, an enormous amount of courage. You know, they've toppled two governments in less than a year. They've shown an enormous amount of potential. And even though, you know, one of the biggest problems I would say that the movement is facing is that it, ha it doesn't have kind of a core leadership. It, this is actually the best hope for Lebanon and the Lebanese masses, is this ongoing revolution and movement that, that threatens the ruling class and threatens to actually change everything in Lebanon. Um, so what's needed is for the workers to trust themselves. They shouldn't look to the IMF or the imperialists, and they shouldn't look to any kind of sectarian or political leadership in the already existing institutions and Lebanon, which are the same criminals that have put them in this situation. No, they have to actually trust themselves. So the revolution must take on popular demands of forming some kind of workers' government and spread that revolution across the country. Um, it should go into the workplaces and involve all of the workers in a general strike against the government. Um, and this general strike should actually form the embryo of a new government, which completely changes the situation, right? You should have a democratically planned economy based on the working class of Lebanon, based on, based on the people in the workplaces, based on the people in their unions, which use, uses Lebanon's wealth, which does exist for the good of the people. So you can fix the crumbling infrastructure. So we can fix the low wages. So we can fix the food crisis. So this is the only way forward.
really. It's the only thing that, that is available that's going to provide a future for the Lebanese masses. It's not the existing parties and it's not any outside actors. And only by overthrowing the ruling class and putting the Lebanese masses in control of the economy and society, can we see some kind of change? Only by not trusting these existing people. So what we need is to overthrow the ruling class of Lebanon. We need the Lebanese masses in control of the economy and society. And only in this way can we have a revolution that goes, uh, that is victorious and that changes all the old, uh, throws out all the old criminal garbage and forms something entirely new um, that can change not just Lebanon, but also spread to other countries in the Middle East and provide a future for the Arab masses. Thank you, Adam. Uh, that was excellent. Uh, so we're going to open up the floor to discussion. And the way that this is going to work is um, the way that this, sorry, I see everyone applauding on, on, on the Zoom screen. So that makes, it's making me smile. Um, it was really good. So the way that discussion is going to work, basically, uh, we want this, like I said at the beginning, to be the, to be as as normal an event as possible, as interactive as possible. So we welcome short questions, comments. Um, maybe if you have something you disagree with that you are, are not sure about, you want a clarification on uh, in the presentation. So basically, what you should do is you should raise your hand. There's a raise hand feature. Um, in the Zoom chat. Uh, I believe it's at the bottom right corner. So you just raise your hand. And once your hand is raised, I, I, I'm, since I'm chairing the meeting, I will, I will, you know, give you the right to speak. I'll unmute you and then you'll be able to speak. And we absolutely uh, encourage everyone to, who's going to speak to be on camera uh, because we, we, it's, it's, it's a very strange thing that we're living through this COVID-19 situation. So we want to break the, the isolation and see each other. So if you can turn on your camera and speak, if, if possible, turn on your camera while you speak, that would be really encouraged. Um, and, 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 and I'm also gonna ask you to limit your intervention to three minutes because there's a lot of people on the chat and uh, we want everyone to get a chance to, to speak. And then after the, uh, after the discussion, I'm gonna give the, uh, the right to speak back to Adam who's gonna do a wrap up uh, of, of, the, of the discussion basically. So that's kind of how it's gonna work. But before we, we move on to discussion, I just wanted to uh, mention something. So I mentioned earlier that we are um, a socialist organization, we're called Socialist Fightback, we're organizing this event. Uh, one of the crucial things that we do, and Adam has written a few articles on, on, on this question on the Lebanese revolution, uh, we, we publish our own paper and we think it's absolutely vital that we have an independent voice for the working class in the movement, uh, independent from the corporate media, so that we can actually have our own analysis and our own um, reporting on world events, on historic world events. And, and so we strongly encourage you to subscribe to it. Uh, I believe it's showing up on the screen or it has shown up on the screen. If it hasn't, it looks, this is our latest issue. So, Strongly encourage uh, people to subscribe to, to it. Uh, it's excellent. We write it ourselves, and we publish it monthly, so you can get you can get a, 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 a printed copy to your mail to your door. You can also get an online subscription if you prefer. And I'll post uh, I'll post the link on the chat. So without further ado, I already see some hands up. Uh, like I said, I'm I'm going to 
I have no, you know, I'm Egyptian, so I have no qualms being a dictator. So if people are over three minutes, I will cut them short. I'm just letting you all know. Um, <laughs> so yeah, so why don't we start with, with Alex, Alex Myers. I'm going to unmute you. I'm going to mute myself first and then I'll unmute. Hi, everybody. Thanks, Adam, for all that. Um, forgive me if you covered this in the first bit, because um, I came in a little late. Could you describe um, what the state of socialist or Marxist organizing is in Lebanon? Is there a viable workers' party? And who, who if not um, some sort of Marxist organization, do you think can lead that um, organizing on behalf of the working people of Lebanon? Thanks. That's a very good question. Um, maybe uh, someone in the chat also, in the, in the Zoom chat can also answer that. It doesn't necessarily have to be um, Adam, but that's a good question. And um, I'm gonna give the right to speak now to um, uh, this, the next person on the speakers list basically is going to be Yassine. So I'm gonna unmute you. Hi, uh, thanks a lot for the, the awesome presentation, Adam. Uh, I had a question that's a bit in a similar vein to the precedent one, but I, I wanted to know, uh, given what you've said about uh, the, the ways in which uh, both imperialism and the existing political parties and the institutional structures that are in place are uh, kind of not uh, trustworthy in order for the movement to go forward. And given that uh, uh, there are things to be done, uh, as you've mentioned, what do you think is the most promising in terms of uh, class consciousness and in, in terms of ability to lead the movement forward without falling into either of these traps uh, based on uh, first the existing structures that have uh, been that that were born from last year's and this year's uh, mass movements. Uh, I, I'm thinking about the structures of support, of uh, of care, of organizing. I, uh, I've heard a little bit, uh, for instance, about the fact that uh, people are organizing themselves in order to feed themselves or to care uh, in terms of healthcare, etc. Uh, first and second, in terms of trade unions, uh, do you know uh, uh, the situation? Uh, how? Does it look, uh, especially given that you've mentioned how uh, uh, the the movement going into workplaces and the possibility of a general strike, how important it would be? Uh, do you know uh, the potential of uh, these institutions in Lebanon right now? Thank you very much. Thank you, Yassine. Uh, also a very good question. And I, I strongly encourage if you have questions to really come in. Uh, this is a space to, to, to discuss. So and we have a lot of time reserved for discussion. So please. Uh, so next on the list, I have uh, Yobi. Uh, go ahead, Yobi. Uh, hi. Um, I do have two questions on the Lebanon crisis. So about the one of the questions that I like to ask was uh, um, according to the, uh, the aftermath of the Lebanese civil war, which was divided between the Christian and the Muslim, which was 
Well, the Muslim was supported by, according to the books I read, the Palestinian Liberation Organization, and also Israel was on the side of the Christians, but they, I think they also uh, participated in the war. And also after the Civil War, a treaty was signed. Um, how would you, uh, ask, one other question I would ask is um, how, would you actually compare the um, uh, the Lebanese protest movement to other countries, like countries who are denied, who are being corrupt, other countries that are being more, um, like for example, Venezuela, Sri Lanka, like where Sri Lanka, um, uh, like the current Belarus movement, other countries. And another question I'd like to ask was that, um, was that does the, the, the corruption affect the economy? And also what would happen, and also uh, what would happen, um, how to explain it? Um, Oh, and also I do forgot to mention that the like after French get after Lebanon gained independence, the um a tree um a pact was signed which divide which gave power to the Muslim and Christian in the political system where the um where the president was to be a monarch. Christian and the um, prime minister was to be Shia, Shia Muslim. What uh, does it affect the democracy? Because in, uh, the people were not able to elect their leaders, able to elect their president and prime minister. Does that mean that the the, um, the political system in Lebanon was only restricted by religion? I mean, it's not even in my in my argument, secular in nature. It's more restricted to, would I argue that it's more restricted to only a specific religion, not even in secular, where people have the right to say, people have the right to vote, not even secular. Would I argue that? Yeah, thank you. That's your three minutes are up. I think those are two very good questions. Uh, so we're gonna move on to the next speaker. Ali, you are next. So go ahead. Oops, I think I, I did the wrong thing. Sorry. Hold on. <laughs> okay. Go ahead. Yes. Uh, hello. Hello, everyone. Uh, thank you for having this uh, very interesting uh, subject. And uh, I'm glad there's uh, this many people on this uh, discussion. I am Lebanese and I live in Lebanon and uh, I'm participating in the movement through uh, the Lebanese Communist Party. And I can answer most of the questions uh, asked before me. And uh, yes, there is a solid workers uh, party, which is the Lebanese uh, Communist Party. And it's uh, playing its vanguard role in the movement currently in the streets. And uh, about the entire uh, nature of the movement, it's, it's very mixed and, and it contains lots of components from both uh, the extreme left to the, uh, the extreme right. But the end goal, of course, is not the same and the uh, ways to achieve that goal are not the same. Some are calling for uh, 
an early uh, uh, general election process and others are calling for revolutionary violence. The thing is, uh, there's a new coalition of leftist movements, including uh, citizens uh, in a country, it's called Muatinun and Muatinat Fi Dawla, MMFD, and uh, the popular Nasserite organization, and of course, the Lebanese Communist Party. Now, the goal of this uh, coalition uh, is to strive for a peaceful transition of power between the government and the people, and that is due to the nature of the volatile Lebanese uh, social system. So a revolutionary or a violent uh, transition of power between the government and the people is going to be very hard to achieve and kind of unrealistic. Uh, so the current goal is to achieve peaceful transition of power. Now, this goal is not... Uh, solid it is, it is not permanent it can change according to the uh, conditions and the timestamp that we're working with so yeah that's uh, i hope that answers uh, some questions that you guys wanted to ask thank you thank you ali i'm going to um, mute you now um next i have julian on the speakers list then i have wasan and then i have fatima and then the speaker list is open so please come in with your questions and comments um so go ahead julian you are next hi uh my question is uh what is uh, the role of the united states in lebanon because uh they generally have a big influence in, in this area, but I don't know really what they are doing in, in Lebanon. Yeah. Sorry, I... Um, hi. Right, so... Um... I have a few questions, uh, if anyone could answer them. Uh, the first of which is um, in their definition of a technocrat that they're asking for, um, do they take in um, the possibility or the necessity of having a political affiliation of sorts, or at least a political um, belief, or not belief, sorry, uh, a political a system that they adhere to since, you know, I'm Sudanese and our experience recently with technocrats hasn't been very promising, especially because of how they don't really apply any sort of um, real change, more like just subtle reforms and more like more IMF intervention. Uh, the second question is that with the um, MMFD and their whole peaceful transition into you know, governance, um, do they have like a specific set of demands if anyone could uh, let me know. And what is it that they're focused on most? Thank you. Thank you. Um, next, I have uh, Fatima. I just need to unmute you. Go ahead. Okay, so, Assalamu uh, alaikum ya rifaq. Hello to all comrades and friends that have joined us today to talk about this important topic. Uh, I want to talk about the role of women in the Arab revolutions uh, because it is an absolutely necessary component of the class struggle in the Middle East. Uh, and to be perfectly blunt, without the participation of women, there is no movement. Uh, there is no revolution. Uh, and if there is, it is absolutely doomed to fail. 
Um, it's uh, I would like I one thing that is worth highlighting is the fact that Western media often likes to underplay the role of women in these movements. Uh, they prefer to paint them as these meek creatures in order to prop up uh, their so-called Western democracy uh, and justify their imperialism, which as a side note, this amazing Western democracy that gave them Donald Trump uh, and uh, the likes of Joe Biden, uh, they can keep that Western democracy. Quite frankly, I think we're good without it. Uh, but actually, if you notice, um, uh, they only levy the issue of women's oppression when it's convenient, uh, when it helps them to undermine movements of this scale. Uh, they'll, they'll paint these women as meek, quiet figures, but this could not be further from the truth. Uh, and that's exactly what the Arab uh, revolutions and the revolutionary movements uh, from 2011 until now have shown us. Uh, Lenin once said that the success of a revolution depends on the extent to which women take part in it. Uh, and I would say that the Arab revolutions, the 2011 Arab Spring for, is, uh, is a fine example. Uh, and just to give you uh, an idea, um, in, in Yemen, uh, going back to 2011 now, uh, when uh, the president at the time, President Sadeh, said it was uh, un-Islamic for male and female protesters to march side by side, what happened after that? Thousands of women poured onto the streets just to prove him wrong. And it was actually a young woman, uh, Tawakkil Karaman, uh, who led the, the first initial demonstration on a university campus uh, against the long rule of uh, Ali Abdullah Saleh. Um, and uh, uh, a protester by the name of Faiza Suleimani uh, in Yemen hints that uh, even though they're not explicitly calling uh, for equality, uh, and instead are raising uh, economic demands, women in Yemen have found themselves being taken, in her words, much more seriously by men because of the impressive way that they've contributed to the protest movement. Uh, in Egypt, uh, Egyptian women have uh, a long history of being active members of trade unions, organizations, uh, informal uh, networks and uh, uh, communities uh, uh, in protest. Um, in the earlier protests in Egypt, uh, women only accounted uh, for 10% of the protesters initially, but on Tahrir Square, uh, they accounted for about 50% uh, of the, the protesters leading up to the fall of Mubarak in 2011. Uh, women with and without hijabs, uh, without the veil, uh, protested, uh, participated in the defense of the square, set up barricades, led debates, uh, shouted slogans, and together with men risked their lives. Um, involved in the, the nitty-gritty uh, organization uh, that turned Tahrir Square from a brief moment to a movement. Um, in Bahrain, uh, which is where I'm from, uh, and uh, I actually witnessed uh, the brave uh, role that women played in the Arab Spring uh, when I was there. Uh, women were among the first that descended on Pearl Square in the capital, which was a center for the revolution to demand change. Women led strikes uh, and, and so on and so forth. I could go on. Uh, of course, I can't go, I can't talk about this without mentioning Sudan. I'm sure you've all seen the famous image of the woman protester in a white abaya, a white garment, surrounded by a sea of protesters with her, with her, with her hand raised. Uh, at one point in Sudan, women accounted for about 70% uh, of protesters on the streets, something amazing like that. Um, and many of what I'm saying might be specific to 2011, but what we've seen in 2019 in countries such as Lebanon and Algeria, and what we are about to see inevitably is a revival of these movements. Uh, and when this moment comes, and it will come, uh, women and men will remember these traditions that were built through experience, traditions where workers put aside differences of gender, 
uh, to fight uh, towards a common cause. Uh, and that is something only experience can teach. Uh, and they'll not only remember these traditions, but uh, build and develop past them. Uh, and the role that women played in 2011 is certainly not over uh, because women's oppression in the Middle East and around the world is not over. Um, and in, in the words of uh, Egyptian woman, Reham Muntaz, who is an Egyptian teacher that participated in the 2011 movement, uh, they, they very much encapsulate this, this fact. Uh, she said the fact that uh, through experience, um, solidarity uh, is built beyond gender. She says, uh, women's perception of themselves has been changed through the struggle. Uh, she says, we have suffered the taste of tear gas, but we are not afraid. The women who are afraid to leave the house even they see us and they gain courage. Uh, and so if the Arab revolutions have taught us anything, it's that the road to the emancipation of women is through class struggle. Um, the Arab revolution will recruit its most determined and courageous fighters from the ranks of women because the place of woman is not in the kitchen, but it's on the streets fighting alongside men. We are the most fearless elements and we have the most to fight for. Uh, so thank you, guys. Thora uh, Hatta Nasser, Revolution Until Victoria. Thank you for that excellent intervention, Um Next on the list, I have Jeffrey. Jeffrey, I'll unmute you and you can go ahead. Hold on. Yeah, go ahead. Hi. Uh, um, sorry. <laughs> Um, with um, with the CIA, we know that they do, they they don't like communism, and that they will do everything to undermine it. We see it in Venezuela, we see it in Bolivia, we see it in Brazil. So, if we're able to get a, a revolution in Lebanon, what can we do to protect them to make sure that? they don't get labeled dictators. They don't get labeled all of these buzzwords that gets the United Nations involved and try to put sanctions on them. And you have to do it this way. <laughs> so how can we protect the, uh, the people in Lebanon from outside forces? Thank you. Thank you, Jeffrey. Next I have Fair on the list. Go ahead, Fair. Hi. Uh, yeah, it's just an exciting time um, to live. I guess we could say we we, we have the misfortune of living in uh, uh, in exciting times, in interesting times, um, and that comes with both the bad and the good. Um, and this is something that I think, after the experience of the last wave of the Arab revolutions. I think a lot of people um, became very demoralized uh, by the experience of, of, uh, of those revolutions, uh, by the way that they ended, by the intervention of imperialism in Libya in order to uh, maneuver their people to the top, the Islamists, and then the, the same in Syria. And, and, and really, we saw basically the rise of counter-revolution. Um, but... At the end of the day, um, there, we, we do have to always keep in mind that the battle is not actually decided ahead of time. It's decided by a struggle of living forces. It's decided by the masses uh, in action on the streets 
Um, and it, 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 if we um, kind of allow previous uh, defeats to decide our attitude to the revolutions today, uh, to say, well, it can only inevitably lead to civil war, or, oh, it can only inevitably lead to, you know, um, uh, American-backed or French-backed or Israeli-backed uh, uh, regime, or, or whatever other kind of um, conspiracy-flavored way out uh, of, of paying attention to what's happening in Lebanon, you can, you can convince yourself, because that's basically what it comes down to. Basically, you've decided what the end of this revolution is going to be before it's already happened, and therefore you tune out. And, and so it's very important for us as Marxists, we don't do that. We're going to pay attention to what's happening in Lebanon. We don't know what's going to happen. We don't know if there's going to be the possibility of mass organizations uh, 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 popping up, uh, you know, ad hoc organizations, like when uh, in Barcelona you had committees, even in Egypt you had, you had neighborhood committees that, that popped up, in Sudan you had neighborhood committees that popped up. These kinds of things can actually emerge in the struggle. What can't emerge in the struggle really, unfortunately, is is a, an actual revolutionary leadership. Um, but uh, the masses are learning very quickly and the ruling class has no possibility of decisively ending these movements. So yes, the, uh, uh, maybe the, a, a, uh, 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 the overthrow of capitalism is not on the agenda in the next year or two, right? Maybe that's not what the consequence is going to be of this immediate uh, 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 latest wave. But Every wave brings more and more youth to the conclusion that all of them means all of them, as, as, as uh, Adam was saying, um, and, and that we need to overthrow the entire system. And so if we put in the work now to begin to draw together the elements that understand that the revolution needs to continue and go further uh, and, and strike at the very base of, of the property of the ruling class itself, continue to bring these people together, uh, and build an organization on the ground that can actually uh, play that role, uh, then the events that are, that are happening now are such explosive events that a very small organization can, can, can actually um, find itself in a matter of, uh, uh, in a, a short space of time, um, uh, in a situation to actually uh, play a, a decisive role. Um, but we have, to, we have to pay attention to what's happening uh, and take uh, inspiration from this first of the next wave, this first revolution of the next wave of, of our revolutions. And of course, it doesn't stop in Lebanon. Uh, somebody said uh, Lebanon on its own can't, can't withstand uh, uh, imperialist uh, uh, attack. And so it would uh, have to spread across uh, the Middle East. And our duty in terms of solidarity with, with the Lebanese, ma Lebanese masses would be to work towards a revolution here too, to tie the hands of the imperialists and prevent them from creating a new mandate in, in Lebanon and in Syria, which is really what they've been trying to do since the beginning of their attempts to destroy the, the, the Arab revolutions. Thank you, Fair. Uh, next on the list I have Ben. Go ahead, Ben. Okay, thanks. Uh, yeah, really good discussion so far. I learned a lot from, uh, from the lead off and from uh, Adam's article on the website. You can check out marxist.com to read it uh, for a nice in-depth uh, uh, dive into it. 
Uh, I'm not an expert on Lebanon, but I do know a few things about the IMF. And uh, the IMF has been offered by, uh, by Macron, by the imperialist powers, as, uh, as an answer to uh, Lebanon problems. Uh, as Adam mentioned, uh, Lebanon is one of the most indebted countries uh, in the world. And of course, this uh, you know, debt load is a uh, you know, heavy burden on, uh, on the uh, shoulders of, uh, of the Lebanese people. Uh, particularly the Lebanese working class, which um, uh, which has uh, you know taken the brunt of trying to pay off this awful debt. Uh, one of the uh, things that they tried to do that's well known is the uh, is the WhatsApp tax, an, ex an extremely uh, regressive tax that taxes uh, you know the people who are least able to pay uh, to try and pay off this mountain of debt. Uh, and the IMS presents you know no real solution. Uh, to uh, to Lebanon's problems, and in fact, they're going. They would actually, uh, you know, compound uh, these problems if uh, if they take this uh, IMF debt relief. Uh, debt relief. Uh, everywhere where uh, where the IMF has gone, uh, it has uh, it has made problems worse. Just look at uh, you know countries uh, like Jamaica or Greece or Ireland, uh, which has taken IMF debt and, or sorry uh, IMF uh, so-called relief. And uh, and of course, this financial relief, uh, you know, comes with strings attached, right? This isn't this isn't this isn't just like free money that uh, that they can pay back at the leisure. Uh, every time uh, a country accepts um, uh, accepts uh, IMF uh, IMF uh, finance, uh, they have to. It comes with um, uh, requirements for what you have to do to your economy. Um, uh, it requires countries to take on austerity measures. Uh, like uh, like that WhatsApp tax, and we would probably see even worse WhatsApp taxes or regressive taxes like that. And of course, cuts to services. You know, Adam already talked about uh, the lack of garbage disposal. It would probably get even even worse if they're forced to uh, if they're forced to cut even more. And uh, and that's really all that uh, that the IMF is at the end of the day. It's uh, it's an enforce it's a tool. It's an enforcement mechanism for imperialism to make sure that all countries. Around the world are accepting the uh, necessary uh, uh, economic reforms that are required of them from imperialism. That makes uh, Lebanon the uh, you know best place uh, you know a good place for uh, for exploiting cheap labor, uh, for uh, for for taxing uh, taxing them into the dirt and um, and uh, and making everything worse. You can see what happened in uh, in uh, in Jamaica, for example, when they accepted. Uh, IMF funds, uh, their their debt only got higher and things only got worse for Jamaicans. So this is only so this is a totally uh, false solution presented to the people of uh, of Lebanon by imperialism. Uh, we shouldn't buy into this for uh, for one second. We should fight against austerity and uh, fight against the capitalist system that's uh, that's causing these problems in the first place. Thank you, Ben. Uh, after Ben, I have. Juan, go ahead, Juan, you are next. Uh, hi, everybody. Thank you for the great uh, lead off, Adam, and for everybody's intervention so far. Uh, somebody did ask the question if, you know, if we can make any connections to the movements that have been happening ar around the world, you know, such as Venezuela and Chile. And if I'm just going to take a second or two to touch on Chile because um, the movements that was sparked there was sparked, you know, uh, there was a slogan that was, it was not, 30 pesos, it was 30 years because, you know, it was a small increase in bus fare that supposedly sparked the whole movement. 
Um, but really, it was, you know, the the ferment and the anger that had been building from so, for so long in, you know, in the Chilean society and the work in the working class and the poor. Um, so and then another speaker talked about, you know, the oppression of women, you know, in Lebanon and in Latin America and in Chile, you know, there's huge levels of machismo and femicide, you know, and in the past couple of years, we've seen um, big movements you know, uh, around women for the right to abortion. Uh, legalized abortion and you know other reforms for women but we can see a lot of the same issues you know whether in lebanon uh in chile and venezuela or even in canada um so that's one thing that we should take into account and uh another thing is that as marxists you know we look at things dialectically so one of the th one of the things that we say is that you know uh, necessity is expressed through accident so in chile it was the small raise in bus fare that expressed the necessity you know, uh, and that's when the mass is active. And in Lebanon, we could almost say the same thing that with the explosion, right? The explosion was the accident, but really the necessity for change was already there and it's been there for a long time. So if it wasn't the explosion, then it could have been something else, right? But, um, so that's one thing. Now, if we were to learn any lessons, you know, from other revolutions and other revolutionary movements, we can look at Venezuela. And one of the things that the IMT has been saying for decades, was that you can't have half a revolution, right? And that's something that the Lebanese workers are gonna have to learn. Um, and what do I mean by that? I mean that if the workers don't control the main levers of the economy, you know, if you don't begin to dismantle the state, including the army and the police, if you don't put uh, the, if you don't nationalize the banks under democratic workers' control, if you don't get the labor movement involved, um, if you don't get the youth involved, then you know a lot of this effort that the masses are showing right now will come up short. Yes, it will, you know, always, uh, of course, affect their consciousness, but the main goal is to transform society. So some things will be needed, and these are some of the things that will be needed. Um, so just to sum up, you know, uh, it will be important for the Lebanese workers, to, you know, to have a Marxist perspective if they ever, if they want to uh, gain power. And for us, it'll be important for us to continue to monitor uh, the situation and uh, analyze it dialectically. Thank you. Thank you. Sorry, I forgot to mute myself. I hope that wasn't too disruptive. Um, so next I have on the list, Matani, you are next. I'm gonna unmute you. Go ahead. Sorry, hold on, it's not working. Okay, now you're unmuted. All right. Uh, yeah, I think that the Lebanese workers this year have really shown us what it means to fight. During a pandemic and throughout less than a year, they managed to topple down two governments. The ruling class has left the Lebanese people um, without um, homes. It left them hungry. It left them without a currency really without anything but a burning passion to make things right and get the justice that they deserve. And you look at the conditions and you'd understand why is that is happening, right? Like 45% of the Lebanese population were projected in 2020 to be living in poverty. In March, the government defaulted on its own debt. And that is because the government sitting, billionaires and millionaires sitting there were gambling all this money that they milk out of the masses and they from imperialists like Adam mentioned from France. Now, now the ruling class, you have them, they're gambling with people's lives and, and 
through complete negligence, literally blew up the people of Lebanon. They left 300,000 people homeless, and now they're trying to co-opt the movement, as Adam also mentioned in his lead-off. Uh, the Qatar party is trying to use the people on the ground who've lost everything uh, so that they can then form another government that's also just as criminal, just as negligent. Um, the people of Lebanon uh, should really know, and this is like a message for them, is that what you need is already in your hands. You've shown your power. You've proved that these sectarian and religious lines, they're so insignificant when compared to your ability to have all these millionaires, all these crooks with all their guns and all their millions step down when you're on the streets. Uh, you have the power to run this country for your own. And I think just to kind of like point out, you should learn uh, from, the, from the lessons of the Sudanese revolution in 2019. Uh, one of the uh, attendees here, Wesson, brought up um, the technocrats and the reformists. And the Sudanese revolution was put in the same position. They managed to top down also two dictators in a matter of just a weekend. Um, but it was co-opted, the movement was co-opted by these technocrats and these reformists by saying they want to form a civilian government. And that, that sounds catchy, right? It sounds like they're doing it for the civilians, for the people. But in a matter of fact, is that they did not address the issues in society based on class. They did not challenge privatizations. They did not challenge international banking. They did not put forward a program for a planned economy, for a nationalization, for utilizing all this money that's in society for the Sudanese people, right? And that is what the, the Lebanese people should learn from the lessons of the Re uh, Sudanese revolution. Put forward the socialist program. Trust no one but yourselves because what you need is your own power and you have that, right? You have the power to inspire the rest of the masses in the region. Here, we're in Canada and we are inspired by the Lebanese revolution. And I'll leave it at that. Thank you, Matani. That was excellent. Um, next, we have uh, Ramir. I'm not sure how to pronounce it. Sorry. I'm going to unmute you. Hope it works. Yes. Okay. Go ahead. Hi. Uh, sorry. Yeah. So I took some notes here to answer a few things. Um, First of all, just uh, as a bit of insight, I moved to Canada at the beginning of this year. Uh, I was part of the revolution that Lebanon started in October, uh, but I had already planned for immigration, so, uh, so I moved here. Uh, and I would like to answer a few things. So first of all, someone asked about the website of the that is one of the sites in the revolution that wants peace for transition. So it's MMF. I-D-A-W-L-A.com. Someone wanted to see what they're about and they have a nice uh, website for this. Uh, second of all, I just wanted to comment that the financial crisis in Lebanon didn't happen because of defaulting on a debt. It's because of one of the biggest planned Ponzi schemes in the world where the central bank uh, and the banks gave people insanely high interest rates for setting up saving saving accounts and like for like 10 percent 11 percent uh on their savings and they didn't have the money for this so basically they would give people the the interest but it's actually fake digital money it's not real cash and when people want to take their money out of the banks they had no more cash and this began a whole black market of conversion from usd to, to lebanese pounds 
even though officially the Lebanese pound is still the same value as it used to be a year ago. Uh, second of all, uh, I want to talk about uh, about like the difference between a revolution and in a place like Syria and a place like other Arab countries and Lebanon. For it's, the, the huge difference is that in these countries you have one dictator, we have one head, one person uh, to fight, to unite against. But in Lebanon, you have basically a sort of oligopoly of mafias, now, people working together. And you can see this pattern in the elections where uh, in the, not the, the past elections, but the ones before, they used to be in, in lists against each other. In the previous uh, uh, elections, they noticed that their public opinion was uh, get, becoming against them. And so they changed the electoral law in a way that would get them into being in the government again. And in addition to that, they decided to be to unite on lists together against all the other in, uh, independent lists. Uh, and this is how they got elected again. And but most notably, this was the first time we in recent modern years, we would have one independent person in the government, not politically aff affiliated. These, po uh, these political parties, they're, they're all headed by previous warlords uh, and terrible people who get into power with time because they're part of the government and they make the government be incompetent, leading to, to people depending more on them. So people who don't have any power will need to depend uh, or money will need to ask for favors from these uh, head of mafias or political leaders to get a job somewhere. And basically they, they'll tell you, no, why would I revolt against this guy? He got me a job. He fed my family, he fed my kids, etc." And so this is what makes the, the situation a lot more complicated. Uh, and like, this is one of the things that the, 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 you can, they, they even work in, some of them even work in the drug trade. We have a lot of uh, cartels in East of Lebanon uh, who have deals with some political parties to benefit financially. Example, Hezbollah, who, who, who also have been, uh, have been caught dealing drugs around the world, not only in Lebanon. Uh, and you also uh, have something uh, which is unrelated to this I want to talk about as well, which is the cut down on freedom of speech. We've, that it's, a, it's a pattern we've been seeing recently in Lebanon where they don't really do it in a, an authoritarian way, uh, but what they would do is they would uh, uh, basically uh, scare people by inv uh, inviting them to get into being interrogated by the uh, the Beniz, uh F FBI or CIA or NSA style thing, uh, intelligence agencies in Lebanon, uh, where they would, for example, let's say they insulted someone or they said or they tried to uncover some corruption by some political leader, they would get invited and they'd have to sign a paper where they would swear not no longer to like to insult this person or to write about this issue of this person doing this bit of corruption. Uh, I've personally been interrogated before for something else unrelated. And I didn't get physically attacked, but they do a lot of intimidation tactics. And uh, you basically you're left there for six to seven hours, even sometimes for days. Uh, I didn't have to sign anything, but some other people will have to sign something in, in order for them to be released. So it's basically conditional release. Uh, so yeah, I just wanted to raise these issues for you to, to basically get a bigger understanding of things. 
of why it's it's pretty different. I've, I'm not sure I've seen a situation similar to the one in Lebanon in terms of uh, fighting a group of mafias instead of just one or two sides. There's just a huge side. And they use this tactic, which is the fear of others that a lot of dictators do. So a fear of even Trump. So a fear of the other, a fear of the enemy, a fear of uh, the other person. They use it inside of Lebanon between religions. So the Muslims fearing uh, the other Muslim sect or the Christians fearing the Muslims. They keep using this fear to you know, keep people sep separated and uh, depending on them, keep them weak, keep them poor, and they're easier to control. Uh, and one last thing, I hope I'm not uh, over the time. Uh, it's someone asked about the role of the US in Lebanon. And I want to say that it's the role of all the external powers in Lebanon. It's still sort of like a Cold War all the time. People in Lebanon always want to depend on someone else. The US and Saudi Arabia used to back the Muslim Sunnis, for example. And at some point after uh, uh, Mohammed bin Salman came to power in Saudi Arabia, we, re we noticed some uh, uh, pull out from Saudi Arabia, they, they stopped supporting uh, as, as much as they used to do, used to before. And now we're noticing a push from Turkey and Erdogan to replace Saudi Arabia as the backer of the Muslim Sunnis. So instead of them re uh, relying on them, their own, their, their own themselves, they, they always want to rely on some backer from the outside. So this is another thing to note. Thank you. Thank you. Um... Next, I have Joel, who's sitting right next to me. So, uh, Joel, you can go ahead. Oh, thank you. Uh, I just had a couple of things to say. I, I've been a Marxist for like 15 years or so. And uh, I remember talking about the Middle East, <laughs> always revolutionary perspectives for the Middle East, about Lebanon, about Syria, about Saudi Arabia, about Egypt. Uh, about Iran you talk about and and especially about Lebanon but about generally when you talk about politics in the Middle East someone always says it's too hard <laughs> workers of the world unite are you crazy it's impossible you can't have it not in Lebanon never in Lebanon everyone's so divided it's impossible or uh, not in uh, can't have it in, can't have it in Palestine, can't have it in Israel, impossible. No one will ever unite across these divides. I'll tell you, people will, and people are, and people in Lebanon are proving, <laughs> are proving all these cynics wrong. And, and actually we said for a long time, no, workers will unite, that the pressure of capitalism and the crisis <laughs> makes them realize eventually that it's a big game that people are playing to, to divide us on whatever lines, on the lines of color your skin, on what religion, on what type of Muslim you are in the Middle East, it gets a bit ridiculous, actually. <laughs> the divisions that they can, they can uh, pit us against each other when it's really just to make us fight each other so we're not fighting them. <laughs> and they're really a bunch of, especially in a country like Lebanon, but in a lot of Middle Eastern countries, but come on, to be honest, even in Canada, <laughs> they're a bunch of gangsters, man, getting, well, look at what Trudeau did with this we scandal. It's giving millions of dollars to his friends. Anyway, so they're trying to divide us along whatever possible line they can find. Uh, and, and, and therefore, I think uh, uh, what's been proved in Lebanon, people may have seen some videos on this, of protesters on the streets. There's one that 
uh, I, I particularly liked to, was a young woman making it, doing a chant. And the end of every line was revolution in all countries. And it wasn't about Lebanon, actually. It was about the, it, it was about the Middle East. It was about actually the whole world, <laughs> which is workers of the world unite <laughs> in different words. So I think uh, sometimes people say Marxism is utopian or it's disconnected. I think that what's happening in Lebanon has actually proven that it's not. It's, a, it's theories drawn from the, experience, the, the concrete reality, the experience. And I think what's happening, not just in Lebanon, I think the Arab Spring showed that. There was a lot of people saying, oh, you'll never have it in the Arab world. There, People are too dumb or they love dictators or they're too religious or something or whatever. And then it happened in Tunisia. People say it never happened in Egypt. It's different. Mubarak is too strong. He pays the soldiers too well, blah, blah, blah. What happened? <laughs> it's overthrown, you know? And I think people say the same thing. And I think uh, we have the right to be optimistic. And an event like this proves that we have the right to be optimistic. Now, does this mean that you're going to overthrow capitalism in Lebanon tomorrow? I don't think so. Uh, uh, not to be pessimistic, but I think there's a lot of learning that needs to be done. And I, I, but I'm confident that people, the, the traditions in the Middle East, uh, a lot of people don't know that. They think that religious sectarianism has al it's always been that way. No, it hasn't. It's very new. Historically, it's very recent. As a political tradition, sect religious sectarianism is very recent. The tradition through most of the 20th century was revolutionary, communist, Marxist, or at least socialist or left-wing nationalist. Uh, uh, and actually a large part of the religious sectarians, the, the religious fundamentalists were, were paid for, were, were funded by and propped up and uh, fostered by imperialism in Saudi Arabia, in Israel, uh, even in, in Lebanon, as, as Adam explained. So I think, but I think that the people have a revolutionary tradition, a class tradition, an internationalist tradition, a Marxist tradition that they will, and they are in the process of rediscovering. And it's our task as internationalists, as we're doing here today, <laughs> to help them rediscover that and to fight for a voluntary socialist federation of the Middle East uh, linked to a uh, socialist world. Thank you. Thank you, Joel. After Joel, I have George. Um, George, I'm going to unmute you. Go ahead, George. Hi there. Um, I'm not quite as uh, good as you guys. You guys are very well, well, well versed in all this, but I come from Honduras and that's where I launched my revolution from. Um, I'm actually from Alberta, but I've lived there for 10 years. And I have this, 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 um, philosophy of first Honduras. Now that could be first Haiti, that could be first Lebanon, but everybody talks about all these divisions and they are not complicated at all. The Middle East is one place and there are a thousand problems in it. But as soon as you get to the top of these problems, you quickly find that there is usually one person sitting in one office and with one signature that can do all of this for us. So for us here, sitting here watching it, and making it this great big complicated thing, it's not, it's really not because the people that can affect the change for us here in Canada, they're sitting in Ottawa right now and they, they go for coffee at Starbucks every day at noon and they are putting policies out into the world that cause so much pain, all to protect mining interest, extractivism, and they make these divisions amongst all of us. We've heard this today. 
since the French controlled Lebanon, they have been picking and choosing whatever force will get them what they want. And as soon as they abandon that, that group is no longer popular. And then they just pick another one and they pick another one. And then you get these situations where each country has extreme elements of corruption and crime. And it could be done across ideological lines. They've exploited communism against us. They've done everything. It doesn't matter. They have no ideology. They have no lines. It's not complicated. There's usually, there's probably like 10 offices in power that we could walk into and it would completely change the world tomorrow. So that's my non-college pipe fitter version of events, I think. Thanks. Thank you, George. Uh, that was great. Um, next on the speakers list, I have Khaled. Khaled. Computer is slow, it takes a while for it to unmute. Okay, you are unmuted, go ahead. Khaled, uh, we can't hear you for some reason. Hello. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna mute Khaled for now, and and maybe uh, uh, they can go next. So next on the list, I have Camille. Camille, you can go ahead and speak. Hello. Can you hear me? Okay. Yeah. One of the things that. Uh, is interesting that most of the uh, opposition groups uh, are saying is that uh, well, the Lebanese uh, ruling class is corrupt and all of that, which is correct. But uh, here there, I see like an attempt to separate politics from economics, right? That uh, it's only because there's a corrupt group of politicians, uh, we have this problem, right? And uh, I'll, I'll, quote, I'll quote Lenin here. And Lenin said, uh, <clears throat> uh, politics is concentrated economics, right? And uh, and this is really, I think, the key for, for the whole situation. Why, why do you have this corrupt regime? Uh, it is literally falling apart. And, uh, and, and, and the reason is, is Lebanon was set, up, was set up this way. This is a country that was set up to be, to be like this, to be a small country, uh, it'd be a, a financial hub and a tourist hub, uh, completely dependent on the world market, on, on, and especially on Western imperialism, and a point of support for Western imperialism, really. Uh, uh, that it doesn't really produce much in terms of like uh, industry, right? Uh, uh, and, on, and on the basis of this, there is a very parasitic ruling class, right? <laughs> it's completely connected to, to outside interests. And then after the civil war, this, this got much worse actually after 15 years of destruction, whatever was left of Lebanon was destroyed. And, uh, and Hariri, the, Hariri, the father, the father of Grant Hariri is the engineer of, 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 uh, of Lebanon of today, which is even more, uh, which is an economy that is even more parasitic and more, uh, uh, dependent on, uh, on, uh, on, on the world market. Uh, uh, and Harry was actually a double agent. He, he served both the Saudi ruling class and, and the Syrian and the Syrian regime. And he balanced between them. And, uh, and at the end he, he messed up and he got blown up, but, uh, and then his son, uh, uh, who's, uh, kind of blaming his wallah and, and all the Lebanese, the other, the Christian old parties, like the, the forces and Kataib, they're blaming, uh, well, Hezbollah has a hand, has a hand too in this because he, they 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 support the government. Uh, but it was them who set up this this uh, this country this way uh, before way before Hezbollah. Right? 
Uh, and for example, uh, Lebanon imports 80% of its consumption needs of food and industry. This is a country that has everything, land, beautiful weather, that can produce a lot of things, right? Uh, and the essence of that current crisis is that Lebanon is completely dependent on the American dollar uh, uh, to, buy, to buy its needs from abroad, right? And uh, the, its main uh, export is actually its own people, right? <laughs> the Lebanese have to immigrate abroad to send back money to their parents, right? Uh, so they can, so Lebanon can buy things right on the world market, and also, of course, other other like uh, financial operations. Uh, but since the the, the world crisis uh, of two thousand and eight, uh, and and the civil war in Syria and the whole chaos in the region, the ability of Lebanon to, to attract uh, U.S. dollars has has been reduced a lot, and this has created an imbalance in the, uh, in, the in the banking system. And this is really the basis of the current crisis. That's why, the, as the previous speaker said, there's a Ponzi scheme that the, the central bank was trying to, to, to attract dollars to kind of rebalance uh, rebalance the budget, uh, the import export budget, and be able to buy things. Uh, that's why, like, there is so many shortages of things like uh, like like oil and and uh, and wheat and such. So this is a completely parasitic parasitic system uh, economically, you know, just as as a, as a political uh, uh, setup, right? The political setup is a reflection of of this economic system. And here I would like to uh, kind of touch on the question of uh, what forces are there today in Lebanon to perhaps uh, lead the movement. And there's a comrade from the Communist Party who spoke. And I think the Communist Party has, has taken some good uh, positions uh, saying, you know, all of them have to go and such. But uh, unfortunately, uh, just to say that we just have to, uh, you know, get rid of this political ruling class and set up a a new government outside outside of the political elite, and and this would be a transition. Everything would be fine. I don't think I don't think this uh, really adds up. Uh, it sounds just uh, to be honest, the, the Communist Party sounds just like another liberal party <laughs> or a left liberal party. Uh, what, what would be the basis of this government? Would be the same the same uh, would be capitalism? Would be the the banks, the the export import mafias of Lebanon, the the same, the, the same economic interests that actually support the current political regime, it's impossible, right? It's impossible to have a different kind of uh, regime or a different kind of government on the basis of this economic system, right? Uh, and, and, and that's why I, I really support what some comrades have said, that you really need a transformation of society. And the Communist Party actually, which is fairly very small now compared to what it used to be, but it still has it still has caters and, and roots and has very good traditions, right? Uh, and an honorable history as well, right? Uh, and could it could become a mass party actually if 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 it would organize differently if if it would drop the idea of uh, uh, you know uh, I, I see what Hannah Harib is saying and the leadership of the Communist Party we just need uh, some sort of a unity government united with uh, the, the 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 national uh, the national bourgeoisie you know for, and build the state that is the bourgeois state right. <laughs> Uh, it's impossible to have a real bourgeois state in <laughs> a stable one in, in Lebanon. I mean, this what we have now is a bourgeois state, <laughs> right? What we have now is a national unity government. It's the unity of all, all the thieves all representing the different layers of the capitalist class, right? So, uh, if, if the Communist Party would, would to go to that to the to the to the working class, which which it has experienced, by the way, uh, the Communist Party of Syria and Lebanon used to be united, built the labor movement and built all the unions in Lebanon and in Syria. Uh, uh, and still, and still has like, and, and of course, fought Israel before it was uh, driven out by Hezbollah, uh, right? Uh, and unfortunately, in the last few years, uh, the Communist Party supported Hezbollah, uh, and and kind of uh, uh, fought, 
followed it, right? Which is which is wrong in my opinion. Uh, I think now uh, I see like the leadership is separating itself a bit from Hezbollah, but the, the Communist Party, if it, if it is to to organize the ruling class, if it goes to workplaces and organize the workers on the basis of of, of socialism, right? Uh, on you don't have to have a civil war, you don't have to have uh, an armed uprising at the moment, but if you start organizing the workers. Uh, uh, rebuild the workers' movement uh, on socialist basis with the idea of seizing, see, seizing, seizing the economy out of the hand of the capitalist, uh, and 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 organizing a planned economy, right? I mean, this is how the uh, the Communist Party, the Syrian and Lebanese Communist Party, which used to be united, as I said, uh, was uh, was was organized part of the common term, right? Which came from the Russian Revolution. <laughs> how did the Russian Revolution come to power, right? How was it? How, how could it be victorious? It was by seizing, by expropriating the bourgeoisie, right? And, and building a socialist economy. Uh, this is what we need today, really. Uh, and I think uh, it's the, in terms of what existing forces today in Lebanon, political forces, that the Communist Party is the only clean force, is the only force that could potentially uh, uh, build, build a mass party today of, of, the, of the oppressed and, and, and the working class. Uh, but as I mentioned, uh, the idea of uh, uh, sort of some sort of a unity government and, uh, and, and some sort of a uh, uh, a building a bourgeois, a, a, a building a bourgeois state that is stable, uh, it has to be dropped, uh, uh, and we have to go directly to the workers uh, and rebuild the workers' movement from from the scratch with the ideas of socialism, really. Uh, and uh, I, I will echo what uh, what Fair said too that uh, now it might look difficult, uh, but uh, but we start with ones and twos, and and, and Lebanon is literally falling apart like the rest of the region. Like uh, if we are scared of civil war, uh, well, civil war was coming. Yeah. It would be like, like Rosa Luxemburg used to say, uh, socialism or barbarism, right? Uh, uh, that's my opinion. Uh, if, if the working class doesn't seize power, uh, it will be another civil war eventually, right? Because uh, literally we have uh, a failing state uh, in Lebanon today uh, and in many countries, right? And with and with imperialist intervention, right? Uh, so uh, uh, that's all I have to say. The last thing I have to say is uh, I feel really sorry for what happened in Beirut. Uh, I'm Syrian, but we, I used to go there a lot, and it really breaks my heart. Like uh, to see this happens to Beirut. It's I know that Beirut is uh, really the really proud of Beirut, and <laughs> they praise it a lot. And they say it's the Paris of the Middle East. Maybe it's a bit exaggerated, but <laughs> uh, Beirut is already a, a special city, uh, a very very unique place, and it, it's really heartbreaking. It's a crime what's been done uh, to Beirut with this criminal negligence of the ruling class. And I hope out of this tragedy, uh, uh, something good will come out. Uh, so people are, are awake in big way and uh, and there's nothing else to lose, like, uh, but but to fight now uh, for uh, for a future. It's, uh, it's hopefully, it's hopefully what we'll have to with socialism. Uh, that's, that's the only way out. So I'll leave it there. Thank you, Camille, um, that was excellent. Um, we're, we're actually running out of time, so I'm going to give it back to Adam. I, I do invite everybody to uh, on the Zoom call and, and people who are, who are watching on Facebook, if they want to join the Zoom call, there's a link that they can just join. Uh, we're going to have, usually after these events, we go out for, for drinks and, and, and talk informally more about the topics and other, other political discussions we just have in, more informally. So we decided we're gonna keep the Zoom call open for that uh, for that purpose after the after uh, Adam's uh, wrap up. So Adam, I'm gonna give it back to you. Okay, go ahead. Thank you. Um, I thought it was an excellent discussion and I'm very glad to see people that are, have been involved in the movement and are involved in the movement 
um, joining us for this call. Um, yeah, I want to echo a bit of what Camille said uh, about the Lebanese uh, Communist Party, um, because I think, I think, you know, one of the positive things that came out of this movement, and I think the Communist Party can take some credit for this, is the rejection uh, of, you know, any outside interference um, and the trying to cut across sectarianism, um, which is quite good. But what I see as the problem, and, and this whole discussion is sort of circulated around this to an extent, is there is really a crisis of leadership uh, within Lebanon and really around the world where you have a situation, you could take Lebanon as an example, where the masses are moving quite rapidly uh, towards radical change and are committing themselves to revolutions, in fact, and cutting across all the problems. You know, someone said, look, Lebanon is... Uh, quite unique in how divided it is. But the masses have shown that such division can be easily overcome um, in, a, in a period of struggle. And this is what they've been doing for the past period. So you have the masses which are rapidly approaching the question of fixing society, but the leadership and the organizations around the masses have not been quite bold enough. And this is, this is you know, this would be the crux of the criticism of the LCP, for example where you have a situation where it's just kind of rebranding the technocratic government slogan. It's saying we need an independent civilian commission to investigate uh, corruption, et cetera. And we need some kind of uh, you know, civilian government that's outside all of these political powers. But the truth is that that's not nearly enough. And reaffirming democratic institutions in, in a country like Lebanon Democratic institutions, unless the workers are in power, will always look like this. They will always look like people lining uh, the pockets of officials. They will always look like a deep sectarian divide. Because in a country like Lebanon, the only way that uh, a ruling class, which by its nature has to be parasitic due to the way the country is set up and to the, its relationship with imperialism, a parasitic ruling class can only maintain the country through dividing the workers. So it's not an accident. It's not like there happened to be all of these things that crashed into the same place and became Lebanon. It's not an accident at all. The sectarianism is tied to the ruling class. It's tied to the fact that if you set up some kind of democracy in the Middle East and you give people freedom of speech and freedom of assembly and freedom of, uh, you, know, uh, you know, criticism, what they will do is they will come with pitchforks at the ruling class. So the ruling class has to divide them in some way. It has to separate them and cordon them off to their individual corners. And, and so what you actually need is you need an entirely new class of people to take power in a country like Lebanon. You need the workers and power. And in this situation where the masses are in the streets and they're, they're you know, really just they're putting up gallows <laughs> and demanding that we kill the political elites. Uh, it's quite amazing. So in this kind of situation, to limit the demands that you make to simply, we want a more thorough democracy, it's not enough and it will not catch the ears or the inspiration of the masses, which realistically want much more. They want an entire shakeup of society. And sometimes people don't quite know, you know, consciously that this is exactly what's needed. But if you tell them, look, we need to get rid of all this corruption and we need working people to take power, this is, this is a slogan that people can get behind. And there's been a failure of leadership uh, to an extent, and there continues to be. 
to do that. So uh, the trade unions are another example. Someone asked about them. The trade unions after the Civil War were restructured in such a way that they're deeply sectarian uh, leadership. Um, and there has not been really unity uh, using the trade union movement uh, across the working class. Uh, before the Civil War, the, there was quite a deep union tradition um, and quite a deep history of, of socialist and communist politics. Um, but after the Civil War, that was you know, wiped out in many ways and replaced with this vulgar sectarianism based around religion. So what you have is a situation where the masses are extremely ready for change, radical change but the leadership has not been able to actually present that to the masses. And you know, that is the shame of the situation because if you had bold leadership, what you could do is you could actually present uh, these radical demands. And it's my belief that these demands would pick up almost instantly. I think, I think many people would immediately look to an organization that was bold enough to call for the workers to take power. Um, but such an organization, you know, it would have to be uh, bold it would have to tie itself to the working class and would have to put the issue of class independence first and foremost. So not only are the masses not divided on sectarian lies, they form no unity whatsoever with the ruling clique that currently runs Lebanon. There is no situation where the working class must uh, play second fiddle to the ruling class and, and say, it's okay if you stay in power as long as you promise us this, etc. No, instead the workers are in, are in a position that the ruling class has effectively shown them through this crisis that they are unable and actually, in, you know, in many ways don't want to be competent administrators. This is the basis of any kind of quote unquote social contract. You know, the, the ruling class is supposed to run society well. Well, in Lebanon, they have not. And really around the world, they have not. So why should they run society? No, I think instead what we need is we need the workers in power. And we need a strong organization to head that up. And that organization has to be built, um, you know, through uh, existing institutions, but also uh, existing organizations, but also, you know, brand new organizations that are gonna, going to come onto the scene of history. The trade unions, all the leadership that is uh, filled with these sectarian crooks ha have to be kicked out. And the organizations of the working class have to be re, re, you know, revived in many ways. Um, etc. We need a leadership in Lebanon and across the world. And so if, if you liked what you heard today, um, what I would encourage you to do uh, is to support what we do. Uh, we're, uh, we're members of the International Marxist Tendency. And uh, what we want... Sorry, I, I heard an echo. Uh, we're members of the International Marxist Tendency. And what we want is we want to build that leadership that is needed in Lebanon and across the world um, so that when the masses do move, like we're seeing now, they not only topple governments, but they replace governments. Um, they not only change society, but they take power within society and build a society that's actually worth living in for regular working people um, across the world. So uh, join us, uh, talk to some of our activists after this meeting, um, get involved in, in the struggle um, abroad, but also in Lebanon itself. Um, and I look forward to the day when we can say that there is a socialist federation of the Middle East that has abolished uh, you know, the uh, criminal uh, neglect of the ruling class.
Thank you, Adam. Um, and thank you everybody for attending and for intervening and for asking these wonderful questions. I hope they were answered. Um, I, if you want to discuss more informally, again, I, I uh, encourage you to stay on, on the call. Uh, I also want to make a final appeal uh, to, to donate uh, to, um, to Fight Back. Uh, as, as you know, as I mentioned earlier, uh, we, we, this event costs us money. It, it, you know, it, takes, it takes organizing, it takes a lot of resources to organize these kinds of things, and we, we need the support. So if you just want to donate a little something as, as, as to show your support, that would be greatly appreciated. You can do so at, uh, you can e-transfer something at um, finance at marxist.ca, or there's a link on, on, on Zoom chat where you can subscribe to, uh, uh, to, our, to our paper and support us that way. And then and you would get access to uh, our wonderful Marxist analysis of world events. So, um, so that's it. That's it for our event. I hope you you enjoyed it, and 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 there will be more to come, and uh, long live the revolution. Okay, so.